Welcome to The Dish, the culinary travel podcast focusing on the stories behind world-famous foods. We are your hosts, Tomo and Megzi from foodfuntravel.com. Join us for tasty histories, destination food guides, and more. Well, everybody, welcome to another episode of The Dish. And this is a special episode. We've been talking about it for a while, and we are finally very excited to bring to you our live show recording from the Spotify HQ Christmas Party, December 2019 in Stockholm, Sweden. Yes, we were very excited to be invited and involved. It was such an amazing night. And we're just really appreciative that Spotify actually took the time to record for us so that we can share the episode with all of you guys and you can hear our very first live episode. Yes, and uh, we actually recorded this at the Vasa Theatre, which is an historic theatre located in a late 19th century building in the middle of Stockholm. It was beautiful. Yeah, like all these plush red walls, chandeliers, sculptures of little cherubs and things. Like, yeah, very old school. Gorgeous theatre. Yeah, and there's like massive overhanging mezzanine floor with loads of tables and chairs upstairs. And then downstairs, I mean, like in total, I think maybe we got... 200 people in the room, do you I think? I think it's 300. Yeah, well, I, I mean, I'm not sure exactly how many people were sitting in there. I did not count, but somewhere between 200 and 300. Oh, I no, think. you didn't have time to count, everyone? I, I didn't, no. I was busy doing a podcast recording, actually. Oh, mm-hmm. next time, next time. But yes, we took our seats on our two massive thrones in front of an audience of uh, hungry uh, Spotify HQ people, and we talked about Madrid, Seville, and Rome, as you're going to find out in this episode. For those listeners who don't know much about our personal history, Megzi and I actually both used to work in entertainment before we got into culinary travel blogging and podcasting. So getting back on stage was cool. That was really fun. It was really fun. It was, uh, yeah, I thought I was going to get really nervous because we hadn't done it for a while, but it was, you know, just getting back on that bike. Yep. Just like the old days. And so, yeah, we definitely hope to be creating more live shows in the future. And we are, of course, available to hire for speaking engagements, as well as longer form sort of podcasting style events like this one that you're about to hear. So, yeah, if you have an event uh, that needs someone who wants to talk about food and travel, we're the two people to ask, obviously. Just email us, megzy at foodfuntravel.com and tell us when and where your event is and what sort of thing you're looking for. And we can put something together for you. Something custom and original, or if there's a favorite episode you have from our back catalog, a specific topic that you know we know about from that list, we we can do either. Absolutely. Yeah, we can definitely create a new show for you as well, so you can have a unique show. We just need to know what it is you're looking for. So, pretty easy, really. All right, so yeah, do contact us, megzi at foofuntravel.com, if you are looking to hire anyone for live events. And now it is time for our live Spotify show. Whoop, whoop. Hey, Hello. I'm Tomo and Megzi, UK, Hi. Australia. Thanks for having us here. And we are from foodfuntravel.com. And, of course, The Dish Podcast is our podcast. Yep, exactly. We, uh, we've eaten our way through 94 different countries in search of the best food worth traveling for. And we are here tonight to tell you a little bit about some tantalizing food that you might be interested in. So when Spotify did invite us to come along tonight, we were like, sweet, food, travel. <laughs> That is what we do. And then we followed up with another question and we're like, so when are we going to be inspiring people to go eat around the world? And they were like, right after they've eaten a really big meal. 
<laughs> so, yeah. Um, but actually, funnily enough, even though you guys are eating a really big meal right now, I don't know if you're as crazy foodie as we are, but when we're eating a meal, we're normally talking about the next meal we're going to have the next day. Anyone else? Just us? No, yeah, we're, we're pretty insane. We just talk about food regardless. So... <laughs> All right, so tonight, yes, we're going to be tantalizing your taste buds, hopefully, even though they're being tantalized already, and your brains, though. We're going to be aiming at your brains with some food stories. Exactly. So tonight, we're going to be focusing on two major foodie destinations, and that's going to be Italy and Spain. Mm-hmm. Good right. stuff. Shall we take a seat? I think we should do a little quiz first. Ooh. Before we take a seat on our thrones. That is right. Okay, so we are going to start off this evening in Rome. And because uh, we usually record our podcasts at home in our underwear and not in front of a group of people, we thought we'd actually get a little bit of audience participation tonight. So we do have a question for you guys. Should spaghetti carbonara be made with cream? Oh, we have real foodies in the audience. Yeah. I we, we We didn't know how that was going to go, but there we go. Everybody knows. That was good. That well, was this good. This is good. So. And also, make sure that there are no peas in that either. Yeah. If there are peas, get out. Yeah, that's it. You're going to have to leave early if you're putting peas in your carbonara. Yeah. So actually, if you did think that cream was a part of carbonara, you might actually have to reconsider your trip to Rome because the grandma mafia will track you down and kick you out. Because I don't know if you guys know this, but actually when McDonald's tried to get into Rome for the first time, I think it was like 1986, grandmas actually picketed the McDonald's and they'd made this fresh pasta out the front and they were handing it out to people going, eat pasta, not Mackey D's, eat the pasta. <laughs> Obviously, there is definitely McDonald's still in Rome today. It didn't work, but we're going to talk about a few traditional dishes. Yes. Okay. Well, we're going to take a look at the actual history of carbonara shortly, mm -hmm. but maybe now we should take our Spotify thrones and we can podcast for real sitting down as we would at home. And, you know, let's start just with a little bit of an introduction to some of the tourism in Rome, because we are mainly talking about food tonight for you guys, but just a little bit of travel and tourism as well. Yeah, city escapes. Uh, so Rome today is probably one of the main destinations pretty much on anybody's travel bucket list. And in fact, Rome has been one of the most visited cities for the past two millennia. It is an old school tourist destination. Absolutely. Uh, so you may, of course, know it as the centre and the most powerful city during the Roman Empire. It's an important city for Christians with the Pope residing there. And of course, it flourished in the Renaissance, Renaissance, however you'd like to say it, as the city became a major European capital of the arts, education, philosophy, and of course, trade. Uh, one thing you might not know is actually towards the 1840s, this is when they first started to see the mass international tourism come to Rome. This is when it first started, people coming from all over yeah. the world to visit Rome. Way before other people. Way before, like, today's modern tourism happened. Uh, but it was a little bit short-lived because Rome became a battleground in the you know, revolutionary times of the 1870s, and this continued all the way through until the 1920s and then into World War II as well. Now, one little slice of luck for Rome is that it was left reasonably unscathed in World War II. So Milan and Naples actually copped a lot of the destruction that happened in that time, and Rome did pretty well out of it. So that's why we have a lot of the still-standing monuments that you want to go and see today. 
And it happened about the 50s and 60s that Hollywood turned its sights to Rome. And you will see such glamorous films such as Roman Holiday, starring Audrey Hepburn, <laughs> uh, Ben-Hur with Charlton Heston, and also La Dolce Vite, which is Italian for the sweet life. Uh, and they were all filmed in Rome, all filmed in the city. So and it was basically like free marketing from Hollywood. Free, yeah, ma- yeah. yeah <laughs> Hollywood turned good. up and was like, everybody go to Rome! And pretty much since then, everybody has dreamed about going to Rome. I don't think there's a little girl that hasn't wanted to just head around the streets like Audrey Hepburn and just live that life. I was never a little girl, but sure. Hey. I, I can't vouch for that. That's <laughs> fine. Uh, and yeah, even up until today, like in 2018, 15.2 million tourists flocked to see the sights. They breathed in the history. And of course, they went to eat the food. Advertising for free on Instagram. So Rome keeps getting more advertising for free. Yeah, it's a pretty hectic city, but it's still very much a place that is worth visiting. Let's talk so, about food. Let's yeah. talk about yeah, okay, food. Let's talk about food. That's what people want. <laughs> <laughs> so Rome has some absolute classic dishes that are actually specifically from Rome. And so if you're there, you really should try and you know have a taste of some of these very specific Rome dishes. So one in particular is called soupli. And this is rice that's cooked with meat and tomato, um, just in a tomato sauce. And then they make it into a ball. They stuff it full of mozzarella and then they fry it. Of course. And then like the gooey mozzarella on the inside when you bite into it, just get starts oozing out. Yeah. So you might think this sounds a little bit similar to arancini, which you'll get from Sicily. But if you ask any Romans and they will fight you on it, Supli is theirs. It's not the same. Exactly. <laughs> Don't even try and bite them with that one. Uh, also, you have cacio e pepe. Uh, it's one of the city's most iconic pasta dishes, and it's super simple. Uh, so you have the cacio, which is the local word for the pecorino romano. That's that, that really salty cheese that they have. Uh, it's made from sheep's milk, and it's just it has a very unique uh, Roman taste. It's got a tang, tangy, salty. Yeah, exactly. Mm, and then white. pepe just means black pepper. Yeah. So it's cheese, pepper, pasta. Voila. And somehow just those three ingredients with a little bit of the pasta water, all of the cheese sort of dissolves into this sauce and it becomes luxurious. It's so simple, I don't know how they do so it. amazing. I don't know how they do it. So um, one thing I do have to mention, I don't know if you guys know this already, but every time you put a piece of pineapple on a pizza, an Italian person dies. Did you know this? Yeah. yeah. It's, it's just wrong. So it's so wrong. You won't be finding any Hawaiian pizza... But uh, there is lots of other pizza to find in Rome and some specific Roman traditions with pizza as well. Absolutely. So keep an eye out for Pizza Tonda. And that's the original Thin and Crispy. Who knew? Pizza Hut didn't invent it. (laughs) I think most people knew, but it's much better (laughs) when you eat it in Rome. And it really is like the toppings go to the edge and it's very crispy. Absolutely. You can also get the Pizza Altaglio. Oh, this is great because this is pizza by the slice. But unlike in New York, which you're like, oh, you just go in and you pick a slice and you point at it and they give it to you. The difference is they have whole pizzas on the counter, maybe 10 pizzas, all different toppings, and they have the knife and they're ready. And you're like, so where, where do you want me to cut this? Where, where? There. Okay. And then they weigh it and they serve it by the kilo. Yeah. So it's like, yeah, every different pizza costs a different price. And yeah, 200 grams of that, 500 grams of that. You get as much or as little as you want. Yeah. So cool. Uh, Pizza Bianco. Yes. Pizza Bianco is, it's more, 
I guess if you walked around and you didn't know much about Italian food, you'd think it was just bread. Maybe like a focaccia. It looks a bit like focaccia bread, but it is actually pizza bianca or white pizza. Sometimes they do put cheese on it, but normally it's just the bread and you go and buy that and you can actually make it into a sandwich so you can get like some porchetta put some ham and like those sorts of cold cuts inside of it mm-hmm. and make a sandwich Absolutely. amazing and then of course we have to mention the new kid on the block the trapezino which is like a pizza pocket it's brand new well about itch. 10 years about according 10 years according to rome years it's brand yeah, new yeah compared to the ancient history of rome uh, pizza trapezino is a pizza pocket they've basically taken the corners of a regular pizza, they've opened them up and they pour like stews inside or like buffalo mozzarella with anchovies uh-huh. and then all of that sort of mixes together and you eat it straight away the second the stew's gone in and so that the bread is still crispy on the outside. Amazing. Amazing. And of course, another of Rome's most famous dishes internationally, we mentioned it before, it is the carbonara, the pasta yep. carbonara. Carbonara is really a Roman dish. They're yes. claiming it. So I think a few of you out there do know, but if you want to make a real Roman carbonara, it uses raw eggs to make the sauce, not cream. Not cream. And the secret is adding the whisked egg after the pasta is cooked and you stir it through as the pasta is cooling. And so it goes really creamy. If you scramble it, you got to bin it. Yeah. But if you get it right, oh, it creates this light but creamy tasting carbonara. It's amazing. And me personally, when I make it egg yolks only, I've heard that some people make this with the whole egg. But I, I think it's personal preference. I'm 100% egg yolks only. Yeah. Um, other ingredients that make a true Roman carbonara include pecorino romano. That is the salty cheese we mentioned earlier. And that comes from the hills around Rome. So it's really important and they're very proud of that cheese. Air cured pork cheese. It's the pork guanci- cheek. Pork cheek, not cheese. Not cheese. <laughs> pork cheese. Uh, the guanciale. 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 My Italian is not so good. Guanciale. <laughs> guanciale. And that gives that salty, porky hit that you really yeah. love in it. Crisps up real nice. The fat goes good. Now, with a lot of uh, pasta dishes in Italy, they get very particular about the actual pasta you can use in the dish. But when it comes to carbonara, they don't really care so much. There's a few options. Yeah, you can use spaghetti, linguine, even rigatoni. Um, you know, whatever is actually quite acceptable. And uh, it doesn't have to be made with a certain style of pasta. But you will be in big trouble if you forget the black pepper. Yeah, got to have some black pepper added in. Yeah. Uh, so it is really hard to say who first added cream. I don't know who did it. I don't know why they keep doing it. I blame it. the Americans, maybe. Maybe, maybe, maybe. 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 Hey, 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 hey. Um, but if anyone has ever chosen to not order a carbonara because you think it's too heavy, try ordering one that do- is made perfectly, the one that doesn't have cream in it, the one that is true to the ingredients and to the recipe. And I can tell you, it will be a pasta experience that you will not forget. I think we've got some real foodies in here and some of these guys have already had a real carbonara, mm, I hope which is so. awesome. I hope awesome. so. Uh, so to dive into a little bit of the history of the carbonara. Uh, so roughly translated, it means in the manner of coal miners. And so that's the carboni. That's what they call them. The carboni. 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 There we go. <laughs> Maybe. Uh, and there are actually several... Th- competing theories on on where they actually came from, where um, carbonara came from. Uh, The name seems to imply that either the dish was eaten and created by coal workers, or it could just be that the abundant use of coarsely ground black pepper that resembles coal is where the name came from. 
So they're making it whilst they got coaly hands and they're dropping that's little bits of coal over it. <laughs> Maybe. That's, <laughs> that's a weird possibility. But there are actually three origins that we're going to discuss tonight and see what you think. So number one origin. Well, we need you to pay a little bit of attention to this bit because there's going to be a mini quiz at the end. Mini quiz. We're testing <laughs> mini you quiz. on this. We're going to be asking you which one you think is the, the real theory. Exactly. <laughs> so number one is the coal worker's tale. So it's said that these coal workers, perhaps as early as the 19th century, brought the carbonara down from the hills and the mountains and as they came down to the countryside into Rome, uh, that's where the name came from. These guys were known as the Carboni. Uh, the ingredients that they used could easily be gathered as they made their trip from the mountains down to Rome. So they would drop into local farms and along the way they would pick up things that didn't require refrigeration because that was really important. So eggs, check. Guanciale, check. Pasta, check. And don't forget the cheese, which is found from all the local farms in the region. Check. Yeah, the Pecorino Romano keeps quite well out the fridge for a little bit. Not forever, but long enough. People are going to eat it. This is a dish that they could really easily make just on their little coal fires as they made their way into the city. Possible? It fits with the etymology of the name of the dish. It really does. So maybe, maybe this is a good theory. All right. But we'll see. There's more theories. There are more twos. There are more twos. There are more theories. Uh, (laughs) The meal the Liberation Army gave the world. That's the title of that one. Uh, So another theory, and it seems to be actually the most popular story, according to the internet users, and therefore... (laughs) We can all trust the internet users. The most accurate of all the stories, if the internet says so. Uh, (laughs) There were food shortages after the liberation of Rome in 1944, and they were so severe that the Allied troops distributed military rations that consisted of powdered eggs and cured bacon, and they gave it to the locals. So the savvy Italians took these ingredients, mixed them with their dried pasta that they already had, took their local cheese as well, and voila, we have pasta carbonara. Powdered egg carbonara. Mm. Powdered egg carbonara. Maybe, maybe true, but sounds like a bit of a crazy theory. Third option and the last option, and I just called this one, Americans love bacon and eggs, right? Apparently they do. (laughs) Apparently. So it's a very similar story with the uh, Allied rations tale, and it suggests that after the liberation of Rome, local restaurants were looking for a meal that would satisfy the American troops that were now hanging around Rome and, you know, were getting a little bit peckish while they were there. The story goes that someone came up with the idea to feed them an Italian dish, but with the two most classic ingredients in the American breakfast, bacon (laughs) and eggs. It's, and this was something to help them feel more at home. It seems a bit silly, doesn't it? But who knows? Yeah, you never know. And so apparently when the troops returned home, Carbonara quickly made it onto menus in America and became a family favorite ever since. I mean, I think the most interesting part with all three of these theories is they're all within about the last 120 years. It is a you very recent dish. You yeah. think that Carbonara is a really old dish because it uses quite old ingredients, but actually, apparently, none of the main theories suggest that it is. So... We are going to get you guys to vote. I know not everybody is listening because some people are having a conversation. But for the people who are listening, we are going to get you guys to vote just with the noise of your mouths. Or um, clap your hands. A very quick feet. recap before we do the vote. We have the theory number one of the 19th century coal miners. Did they bring this dish to Rome? Theory number two is the post-war rations. Was the original carbonara made from powdered egg? 
And theory number three, was this pasta dish invented as a way to get American soldiers a happy meal of American breakfast with bacon and eggs? All right, so make Let's a bit of it. noise. Do you vote for option number one? It's the coal miners. Coal miners. Quite a lot, quite a it's lot. It's pretty good. It's, option number people. two, post-war rations. Powdered eggs. Powdered eggs. Oh, no one's falling no for one that. No one likes powdered eggs. <laughs> Three, bacon and eggs. It's Not just so crazy bad. it could be true. Not too bad. So when was it invented and by who? You are all winners and you're all losers. No one wrote it down and we don't actually know. <laughs> There's no written evidence to this. Actually, one of the first written evidence came about in the 1950s. You know, and that's so, why half of these stories are from the 1950s. Yeah, exactly. So there's a lot of arguments that you will have about this particular topic. Um, one we thing led you, you down the garden path the whole did, way. We did, I'm sorry. sorry. About that. What are you going to do? Um, but yeah, even though the Allied troops ration story seems to be the most popular theory to date, and most people will actually state that that is uh, the truth, many local Italians will tell you that the first American GI story makes no sense because of the powdered eggs. You can't make carbonara yeah, with powdered eggs. It would be awful. Eggs. It'd be awful. Yeah. All right. But if you do find a very particular Italian, they have a strange theory, and uh, they may tell you about the legend of a pasta recipe that was passed on from generation to generation since the time of the secret revolutionary society of the early 18th century known as the Carbonari. <laughs> is it true? The society is true. This is a real society. In the 18th yeah. century, there was a society called the Carbonari. But I don't know if it was a bunch of dudes getting around making carbonara. A bunch of coal miners, probably. Maybe. I mean, I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> but yes, yeah, sorry, we don't actually have a definitive answer for you. But, but there is one thing all Romans will agree on. Carbonara should never, ever have cream in it. Yeah, I think everyone can agree on that. Absolutely. It's much better without cream. All right, so from masses of carbohydrate straight into a much smaller famous dish, we're heading to Spain to talk about Spanish tapas. Yes, I'm sure we've got a few tapas fans in here. I'm a massive tapas, tapas fan. tapas? Nobody. Nobody. Right. Yeah, come on. Some people <laughs> like tapas. I'm sure everyone likes tapas, really. Even if it's like Swedish meatballs tapas. I mean, tapas? I don't know. It's... It's like international tapas these days. So, I mean, I'm going to ask you a question. We can ask everyone a bit of a question because some of these guys have probably traveled to these destinations. Definitely. But we're going to be talking about Madrid and Seville or Sevilla uh, in Spain. So from those two destinations, I mean, what's your favorite? What's your favorite, anyone? Madrid, Seville, have people been? Not been? Barcelona. Okay, yes. Barcelona's good too. We might a, talk about that a bit later a good on. good option, but yeah. What's yours? I mean, it, mine was Seville for the very the longest time. And then we finally actually visited Madrid last year, and I really fell in love with it. It's a capital city. It doesn't get the attention that Barcelona or Seville gets, but they do have a really great, vibrant, foodie tapas scene going on. You can just go from bar to bar to bar. It's wonderful. Oh, of course. And uh, actually, I mean, just to compare them a little bit, uh, tapas culture in Seville, they have at least 3,000 tapas bars just for tapas, not for other types of food. And in Madrid, uh, the estimate is around 15,000 restaurants in total, but I couldn't get an actual like specific tapas estimation, but so still quite a lot. So... But Seville's a much smaller place. Yeah, so 3,000 3, tapas for a bars. Tiny that's, place. Yeah. that's plenty for any tourist going on a city weekend break. 
I don't think I could do 3,000 in a weekend. I don't know about anyone else. I mean, I eat a lot, but <laughs> maybe not that much. Uh, but before we look into the origin of tapas, going to take a, a little dive into sort of the meaning of the word and the, the sort of the, the, the style of eating tapas in Spain. Especially for anyone who hasn't been to Spain, it's a little bit different from what they've spread around the planet to other countries. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, the word tapa, it literally means a cover, top, or lid. And it comes from the word tapar with an R on the end, which means like to cover something. And so as I move through this, you'll sort of start to see why tapa covering something is that's why the name has been adopted for tapas. But we'll get onto that. Now, tapas as a term that has become all popular around the world has sort of just it's it's gained this small plates thing and of course in Spain it is a small plates thing but now we have like Asian tapas and French tapas and everything it's like it's been appropriated yeah, to just mean small plates. plates but of course in Spain it's a little bit different from just small plates there's a more of a culture behind it than just the definition of the food and specifically, people go to tapas bars rather than tapas restaurants. I don't know, if you go out in London, maybe you get a group of friends and you go all together to one restaurant and you order like 30 tapas dishes between everybody, have like a, a bunch of drinks, of tapas and you're dishes. there all night. I know. Yeah. And that's fun as well. But like the, the real essence of it from Spain is more about every time you order a drink, you order another little dish. So it's just like snacking the whole time that you're drinking. It's not about just going in for one restaurant meal. And especially it's about moving between restaurants. And that's like the most fun part yeah. of doing a tapas experience in Spain is that you're, you're like doing a roaming degustation every time. So, I mean, although today it's more common that you purchase a, a tapas dish every time you get a drink, in the olden days and even in some of the more traditional restaurants, every time you order a drink, they just bring you something. And I'm not talking olives and peanuts. I mean, like, they bring you a a really cool thing. They bring you some meatballs. They bring you some anchovies. And it's just included. You don't even have to ask for it. So, I mean, I love that. I love that that still happens in some of the more, like, out of the tourist areas. You'll definitely find a lot of cultures where food and booze just go hand in hand. And to have one without the other is just insanity. Yeah, and in Spain it is especially true. That, Very much so. And the crazy thing is they go out for a massive meal after going to like three or four tapas bars. <laughs> exactly. I'm like, I do three or four tapas bars, I'm ready to go home. I don't know how they eat so much. It's, it's amazing. So let's talk a little bit about the actual history of tapas and how it became a thing in Spain. Now, there's actually, once again, there's quite a few theories to this. And you guys Everyone can think about... Everyone has a different tale to tell. You can think about which ones are true or not true. But... Um, some of them have more truth than others. That's, mm-hmm. that's how history works. But I've uh, added a little name for each one. These are my names. This didn't come from an encyclopedia or something. These are just the names that I've given them to, to try and be a bit memorable so you guys can remember which theories we're talking about as we go along. So, theory number one. This one is called the Sick King Drunk Peasants Theory. It's very specific. So, it's the oldest story for the history of tapas that it could have been first invented in the 13th century. Pretty, pretty, old, pretty old, much older than carbonara. Yeah. And apparently, whilst recovering from a sickness, King Alfonso X of Leon, Galicia, and Castile, which is areas of north and central Spain, uh, that's before Spain was even a country. So at this yeah, point, it was like separate, separate states that he was in charge of. He was so sick that he could only eat small amounts of food and drink wine. But like little bits at a time. And little food, 
Lots of wine. Because obviously wine is a 13th century cure for everything. <laughs> and the water would have made him more sick. Yeah, I'm sure the water was probably what got him in the first place. But still, apparently after being sick for all this time and having these little small plates with a bit of a drink every time, he went, well, this is awesome. Like, we should make this a thing in Spain. And also we should enforce it upon all of the peasants who get too drunk that they have to have a dish served to them with every alcoholic drink so that they stay a little bit more sober and they can continue to work the fields the next day. Yep. <laughs> Feudal times. Less hangovers, get them out plowing that field. Yeah. So- Apparently, it makes sense. You have a little bit of food along the way. You line this. Everyone knows about. You got to line your stomach before you have a, a night out. Exactly. That's I mean, what the king had in mind. He might have had an ulterior motive of just getting more work out of people, but I'm sure that was what still it was. Still, a relatively good theory. Number two, theory number two. This one has a, a disgusting name that is great whenever people are eating. This is the stinky wine theory. Mm, stinky wine. Appetizing. So sometime around the 16th century, also around central Spain, somewhere near Madrid, uh, there was a bunch of taverns that figured out that they could trick customers into drinking really bad wine by giving them a slice of really strong cheese on top of the wine. So that when you got the glass, you couldn't smell it was bad wine, and then you had a bit of cheese, and you tasted the wine, and you couldn't really taste how bad it was. I don't know. I kind of think that if it's a bad wine, I would still know it's a little funky. I don't know. I mean, cheese disguises flavors. This is strong cheese. And that is true. I mean, sometimes you can have like a pretty rank wine and then you eat something with it and you're like, oh, actually, it's not that bad. I, d- I don't know. Is the average 16th century peasant a sommelier? I, I don't know. <laughs> I don't wine, think so. Food and wine pairing of Hard the 16th to, century. Yeah. Hard to say. So that's one theory that they just started serving little bits of cheese on top of the glasses. And that was the start of tapas. Theory number three. This one is the Spanish Inquisition Porky Test Theory. What? No one expects the Spanish Inquisition Porky Test Theory. No. Well, maybe some people tonight did, but I, I, don't, I doubt <laughs> I it. I don't know. So this is a little bit of an off-the-wall theory, but it is definitely based on some facts because during the 15th to 19th century, the Spanish Inquisition were trying to clear out all of the non-Christians from Spain. Mm-hmm. And apparently they thought that maybe a good way to do this was to start serving little tapas dishes with pork in them on the side of every drink because then they could actually watch from the bar or whatever and people who refused to eat the pork, because, I mean, 16th century peasants, 19th century, like, You're why would you not eat, eat free food? Free you would eat free food if you got free food. Yeah. So if they I weren't, eat if you give me something free yeah, today. Yeah, I'll, yeah. Eat I'll eat it now. I don't, yeah, I don't need to be from the 16th century. No. So free pork, I'm in. But not everyone from the 16th century is going to be in on this, and they use that as a way to be like, you're obviously Jewish, and we're going to go torture you and, and do all this sort of stuff. So nasty Spanish Inquisition times, but that is one theory that it came out of that. Mm-hmm. Theory number four, the sandy wine theory. So mm-hmm. not the stinky wine, but this is the sandy wine theory. Sounds crunchy. Yeah, crunchy wine. I mean, no one likes sand in their wine. I like cheese with my wine, but I don't like sand in my wine. Yeah. So... This one is another King Alfonso, but King Alfonso Thirteenth, actually from the 19th century where he was in charge of Spain. And apparently he made a trip to Cadiz or Caddy, I'm told by the locals is how it's pronounced. But I guess in English we know it as Cadiz. Down in southern Spain, this one is quite near to Seville. Uh, the town is just a, like a 30-minute drive south of Seville. And due to the windy and dusty nature and being right by the beach... 
They were concerned that the king would get some sand in his wine and that would make him upset. Rather upset. Very, I would be upset, but mm-hmm. the king would be particularly upset and he can execute people and I can't. <laughs> so he's more of a person you'd worry about. And he said, the waiter said, well, here you go. I'm just going to put a nice slice of Iberico ham right on top of your glass and then you're not going to get any sand in your drink. It must have been a slab. Don't you think to cover a, a glass I, of wine I mean, to put a big piece slices. of ham? That's going to be a slab of ham. Big long slices, yeah. small glass, little old nineteenth-century wine glasses. I think it could work. I think it could work. Yeah. But I mean, I really don't know how he'd make it to the end of the glass without already finishing the ham. I do not have that self-control. <laughs> that ham is gone. Yeah, within a couple of minutes of and the ham coming out. And my wine is sandy. Seconds, <laughs> seconds, the ham is gone. Yep. Maybe they stacked like seven or eight slices of the ham on the glass, and he just slowly picked them off and. Sipped under. I don't know. It's a theory. It's not my theory. No. Nope. Just, just re- relaying it to everybody. The final and fifth theory from this, uh, the Seville beverage lid theory, which mm-hmm. is a. I couldn't come up with a funny name for this. No. So it's very literal. It sounds exactly like it is. Around about the same time in the 19th century, it's quite possible that bartenders in Seville started to serve a saucer on top of drinks just so that flies wouldn't get in the drink because of course Seville the climate's pretty hot especially during the summer and it's the worst like you know when you just get that glass of wine and then a bug flies right in it you're like I always get it within like the first 30 seconds of ordering a glass of wine the second they put it on the table like are you kidding me it always gets the bug always gets the bug so I I would have loved a saucer on top of my wine when they serve it but what happened was the bartenders and the restaurateurs realized that if they put a little snack on top Customers were really happy about that. So they started to get more customers. And then all of the bars around Seville realized if we don't give people a snack on their saucer, then our competitors are going to get all the customers. So everyone started doing it. And I mean, this really fits well, like some of the other ones do, with putting a top on the drink. So a tapper for the Spanish. So this sort of all wraps up. Yeah. So I think... Once again, none of them are particularly accurate or definite. You go to Seville and they'll tell you the Seville top one. They're like, that is absolutely the truth. And you go to Madrid and they'll tell you a completely different story. And they're like, no, 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 don't listen to those guys from Seville. They don't know what they're talking about. We (laughs) know the true story. So (laughs) there's a lot of stories that go along with it. And I think actually when you combine them all, they all make a bit of sense. It was like just to keep the wine protected. I think they all fit together really well. Like, they all happened. I reckon they all happened. First, the king was like, you should have small dishes with your drinks. And then they were like, we can put stuff on top of the drinks. I I think that actually all adds up together. But all these different areas of Spain are like, no, it's this theory. It's this one. It's not all of them, but I think it's all of them. That's my personal preference. But to finish up, I think, obviously, we talked about some history, but let's actually talk about some of our favorite tapas dishes. Absolutely. Or at least a couple, because I know we don't have a lot of time left. So, yeah. I mean, you go first. What's your, your favorite tapas dish? My favorite tapas dish comes from Barcelona. Okay, so we did oh, make it to Barcelona. He's in the gone. End. He's, he's in the bathroom. Even, he's not even here. <laughs> Barcelona's not here. All right, so La Bomba. La Bomba. La Bomba. La Bomba. Uh, it actually means the bomb. Uh, so, it is actually round. And it's fashioned like a bomb. Like, you know, like, like an those, old cartoon bomb. The cartoon bombs that are with the. Wiley Coyote would get up. blown up by his big black bomb. <laughs> so the idea is when you bite into it, it, it like explodes in your mouth. Uh, so it's a bowl of potato with a meaty surprise right in the center. And it was invented at La Cova Fumada. 
in Barcelona in the 1950s. Which is like the smoke cave. Yeah, exactly. So yeah, some smoked meat going on in there. So apparently the official naming of the story came about when one of the first customers who tried it took a bite and went, wow, this is the bomb. <laughs> And I'm pretty certain he said In the 1950s. Duff. He was very hip for the 50s. He, he said, was the first to say da bomb, da bomb in the 1950s in Spanish. Yep. And the, the reason original. he said Wah! was uh, it was unexpectedly hot because of they, this really spicy sauce that they drizzle on the top. And so he, he didn't, he was like, oh, here, have a potato bowl. And he took a bite and he's like, Wah! that's <laughs> like a bomb spicy. in my mouth. And so it, they called it, that's where the name came from after that, La Bomba. All right. I'm going to just very quickly mention one of my favorites. I don't think this has a major story behind it, but uh, if you guys head to Seville or if you head back to Seville, if you've been there before, uh, I really like this one. It's called Berrenes uh, Rienos con Gambas, which is an eggplant that's uh, it's rolled with prawns inside and then they put breadcrumbs on the outside and they deep fry it. Dirty. But the prawn has this slightly mm. sort of uh, creamy sauce in the middle. So when you bite in, you get that soft eggplant, you get the crispy outside coating as well. And of course the prawn, a little bit of umami, salt and cream in the middle. Uh, it's amazing. Dirty tasty. Uh, Blanca Paloma. I know no one will remember that. If you're making <laughs> notes, which I'm sure no one is, Blanca Paloma, go eat this. It's really good. All right. So I think we're about to wrap up. Yeah. But I, I mean, we can do a quick call out for, for those of you guys who are still completely engaged. Uh, anyone with a favorite tapas dish? Anyone want to shout something out? Maybe we know something about it. Best tapas you ever ate? Chorizo. Chorizo, oh, yeah. of course. Like a hot grilled chorizo. Oh. Yes. Oh, yeah. Hot you grilled chorizo is awesome. Also, I've got, you got uh, patatas bravas with the potato. Yeah, we got a fan yeah, down there. Yeah, we know. And they do a fantastic um, spinach and chickpea one as well. Yes. I which, can't remember what the name of that one is. Espenicas con garbanzos. Ooh, there you go. It's just spinach and chickpeas in Spanish. It sounds <laughs> fancy when you say it in Spanish, but it's, it's pretty simple, really. That's a great dish. And that one's apparently from Seville because it's got a lot of influences from the Moorish time when they were there through like the ninth century. And they brought over all these different techniques. They were using ground almonds in the sauces. So it's like a, it's a real fusion dish of, mm. of North African and Spanish. So awesome. pretty much the reason why we mentioned those two places tonight was because the theme is, of course, city escapes and foodie destinations. Both Ro uh, Rome, Seville, and Madrid are direct flights from Stockholm. So you can get there nice and easily and do a nice weekend getaway where you can go and eat yourself stupid with all of the food that we've mentioned tonight and so much more absolutely so that's it from us guys uh, thank you thank you for being here thank you for inviting us thank we really you. appreciate it thank you I, I hope you learned some cool stuff and if you take a trip to any of these destinations hopefully you can impress your friends who weren't here tonight by giving them a load of knowledge and make it look like you're an expert mm -hmm. that would be awesome and of course uh, we are the Dish Food Travel Podcast just look <laughs> us up on Spotify because of hey. course we're on Spotify you'll find us please subscribe and do all that sort of stuff and uh, I guess we'll see you at the after party yeah, so we'll if you want to talk around. more about food have we'll a see good you then thank you thank you guys have a good night Another warm applause for the dish. <laughs>
Yes, that's it. That was our live show in Stockholm, Sweden, for Spotify HQ. Yep, we had so much fun, and then they invited us to go to the after party, which was awesome. So yeah, thanks again for inviting us to Sweden and flying us out there. That was fantastic.、Uh, we had a really awesome time, and once again to everyone who's been listening,、uh, all of our regular listeners, and anyone else who's tuning in for the first time. If you are looking for live podcasters, it's us. Definitely, food travel people. If you want someone to come and talk on food travel, we can do short sets. We can do a full length podcast. We can do custom shows, or we can do stuff from our back catalogue if there's topics that you like. That's pretty much it. So yeah, give us an email, Megzi at foodfuntravel dot com, if you are looking to hire some live speakers or podcasters. That's us, Tom and Megzi. We're ready, ready、yes. to do it. Also, if you're Spotify users, go. If you haven't gone and subscribed to our show there, Spotify is definitely growing their podcast network, and there's some really cool shows on there, like a lot of the standards. But there's a few others that I found on Spotify that I haven't found elsewhere. So、mm. go see what、uh, takes your fancy and go subscribe. Indeed, and of course, rate and review. If you like the show or like the previous shows and haven't left us a five star review yet, five stars is the best sort of stars. That's the, that's the good type. They're happy stars. They're the happiest stars of all because they're all there together as a team. Yep. There's only four. There's they're always like, oh, we've got one missing. It's so sad. Yeah, they're they never just, happy. They don't if feel complete. No, they need five. So do that. All right. So that's it. Thanks again for listening to the dish. We'll be back with another episode very soon. Thanks for listening to the Dish. Don't forget to subscribe and keep this podcast on the air by giving us a five-star review on your preferred podcast app or channel. Also, come join our foodie community on Facebook in the Food Worth Traveling for Facebook group. Catch you next time.